Welcome to the Global Research News Hour. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. This week, we air a public conversation presented by Steve Elner about what is really happening in Venezuela. This talk was presented to an audience of over 100 people at the Hotel Fort Garry in Winnipeg. Mr. Elner addressed some of the distortions and misconceptions that audiences across Canada and the United States have about Venezuela. Professor Elner has taught economic history and political science at the Universidad de la Oriente in Porto de la Cruz for over 40 years. As a scholar in Latin American history and a longtime resident of Venezuela, he's uniquely placed to unravel the mystery of current events within their historical and geopolitical context. Professor Elner had embarked on a multi-city tour of Canada and the United States. The Winnipeg Talk was sponsored by the Venezuelan Peace Committee, which is trying to remediate the Venezuelan situation and is particularly focused on eliminating the sanctions being posed on the country by the Canadian government. Here's that presentation, recorded on October 19th, 2018. I, I, I will be defending uh, one basic position, or one basic thesis, and that is that what is happening in Venezuela is complex. Uh, is complex, and that in itself goes against what the Trump administration is saying, and not only the Trump administration, but uh, different Latin American governments uh, and governments of the European Union, with the exception of Spain and a few other countries, um, that, are, that are saying that, that are demonizing President Maduro, uh, and in the process, uh, strengthening the position of the radical fringe of the opposition, the radical uh, sector of the opposition. Uh, because if you accept the thesis that things are complicated, then there really isn't any such thing as a good guy and a bad guy. Uh, it's necessary to analyze. And the position of the Spanish government, which is, let's not criticize, because if we criticize, we can't play a neutral position and try to facilitate some kind of reconciliation or some kind of dialogue between the, the Venezuelan government and the opposition, which is very much necessary. Um, so that uh, this is really the basic point that I'd like to make today. And it's a point that not only goes against what the Trump administration is saying, but uh, as Glenn pointed out, it goes against what the media, I don't know in the case of Canada, I'm not familiar with the media in Canada, but in the United States, the media presents a very skewed position uh, in favor of the opposition, in a, uh, opposition to the government. And I mean, it's true that if what I'm trying to say is that what's happening in Venezuela is complicated, you really can't expect the media, which inherently is, uh, simplifies uh, their readership, doesn't call for analysis, uh, so, on the one hand, you can say that this is in the nature of the media, short articles that aren't analytical, uh, but also uh, when you consider the fact that 
all the publications, not only Fox News, which true to form is taking a, a, a position in favor of the radical right in Venezuela, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, and in fact, all the newspapers in the United States, all the newspapers um, in all the city, all the major, you know, in every city in the United States, just like here in Canada, you have one major newspaper, in some cities more than one, and none of the articles about Venezuela over the last several years, you won't find one article that is even-handed. I'm not talking about pro-Maduro, I'm talking about an article that is even-handed. None of them are that way. Um, so that uh, the situation, uh, and, and as Carlos Ron pointed out, it's necessary to present other viewpoints. Um, and um, I would say that what the media says about Venezuela um, confuses what's going on in Venezuela because the media and the opposition in Venezuela, what they do is they conflate two different topics. One is democracy or the lack of it in Venezuela. And the other is the economic situation. And what they say about the economic situation, what the opposition says about the economic situation, and what the media says about the economic situation is largely true. I mean, they might exaggerate, and some of the Chavistas state this, for instance, uh, David Paravicini, uh, an economist, pro-government uh, economist, says that what the IMF is saying about inflation, they predict an inflation of over a million percent, that they're exaggerating. And it could be that he's right. But the fact of the matter is that the situation economic on the economic front is very dire. But the situation on the political front is much more complex. And in order to understand that, uh, you have to contextualize in order to understand and appreciate what's going on in terms of um, the protests, which Carlos Ron talked about um, in 2014 and 2017. Uh, I want to make sure I don't go. Uh, the protests which uh, resulted in many deaths in, in 2014, 36 deaths, and in 2017, uh, over 130 deaths. So that uh, in order to understand that, you have to contextualize, you have to understand really what was going on. Um, so that what typically you hear uh, among the leaders, the spokespeople of the opposition, and much of what's printed in the media, is they talk about the economic situation. And anybody that knows anything about Venezuela knows that there's, what they're saying is true. There's hyperinflation. Uh, there is um, an erosion of purchasing power. Uh, there is a problem with currency uh, that doesn't circulate. The transactions take place vis-a-vis -vis, uh, internet transactions, and that's sometimes very difficult. So anybody that knows anything about Venezuela says, oh, th this is true. And then they throw in the dictatorship of Maduro, and they throw in the flagrant violation of human rights in Venezuela, and then they go on to the economic situation again. 
And so you kind of get the sensation that, well, if what they're saying about the economic situation is true, what they're saying about politics is probably also true. Uh, and you're left with that impression without really, I mean, most people usually don't analyze things. They don't analyze narrative. They don't analyze speech. And so they're left with the impression that, okay, the economic situation is difficult and Venezuela is a dictatorship and there's flagrant violation of human rights. Let's talk about both. On the economic front, uh, as I said before, there are serious difficulties. And I believe that there are three factors, not three explanations. There are three factors. And I would say that each factor uh, represents about one-third of the uh, explanation for what's happening. One is, and I don't think anybody can really honestly deny it, the price of oil declined, it nosedived in 2014, mid-August of 2014. It's gone up a little bit since then, but when you consider that it, it, uh, it um, went from about $100 a barrel in the case of Venezuelan oil uh, to 30 something, bar 30 something dollars, uh, in other words, less than half, it was inevitable that the economy would be affected. And that's always been the case in Venezuela. Venezuela became the world's leading oil exporter in uh, 1927 or 1928 um, until 1970. And so throughout 20th century Venezuelan history, since the 20s, uh, whenever oil declined, uh, the economic situation became very difficult, and vice versa as well. So that, that's one factor, and I would say that that represents one-third of the explanation. A second factor, uh, in my opinion, is the mistakes that the Venezuelan government has made. I mean, this is my personal opinion. The Chavistas wouldn't say the same thing, probably. Um, uh, some people share what I'm going to say, others don't. But I believe that the government uh, of Maduro has not given adequate importance to the market. Uh, the market is a reality in Venezuela because Venezuela is not a socialist country. As a matter of fact, when people, when analysts uh, who defend the system, pro-establishment analysts, say the Venezuelan case demonstrates that socialism fails, it's always failed. Look at the Soviet Union, look at Cuba, look at Venezuela. Well, the Soviet Union and Cuba, those are two other topics, but in the case of Venezuela, Venezuela is not socialist. As a matter of fact, if anything, the economic problems in Venezuela demonstrate that capitalism doesn't work because 80% of the economy is private. Um, so that's a reality. And the Maduro government uh, doesn't recognize that to the extent that they should, in my opinion. Uh, therefore, you have heavily subsidized uh, products of basic necessity. You have gasoline that is practically free up until very recently. Um, so that, that's part of the problem. Uh, the exchange rate, the uh, this disparity between the official exchange rate and the black market exchange rate uh, got out of hand. And I believe that because of perhaps a uh, 
sort of dogmatic mindset, some of the Chavista economists who were advising um, Maduro uh, believe, well, that doesn't matter because, after all, socialism is not about the marketplace. Socialism uh, um, is about a different model, a different concept. But firstly, there are a lot of Marxists, Marxist economists, who say that the market is not uh, inherent in socialism, uh, in, in capitalism, that uh, you can have socialism in the marketplace. Without getting into that, the fact of the matter is, as I said before, Venezuela is not socialist, it's capitalist. And so you have to recognize that reality. And the third factor uh, is what Carlos was talking about, the economic war. That's the term that the Chavistas use in Venezuela, the economic war. But I prefer to use the word the war because it's not just economic. Um, it, Carlos talked about uh, how the financial embargo has resulted in a lot of difficulties in terms of financial transactions, the, the, the renegotiating or issuing bonds uh, in order to face the problem of the foreign debt. Any country that has a difficult economic situation and is heavily in debt, just like most countries are, um, that's what they do. They renegotiate the debt, they issue more, uh, uh, bonds, um, in order to have a larger time span and pay less in order to face a specific situation of economic difficulty like the one that Venezuela currently faces. Well, Venezuela now can't do that. The, at least um, they can't do it easily because it, the financial embargo prohibits uh, banks from uh, 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 or prohibit people in the United States or, or any financial institution uh, uh, from uh, purchasing uh, uh, Venezuelan bonds. So that is one example. Another example is the fact that the embargo also includes the remittances of, um, uh, of uh, profit by Citgo. Citgo is the largest Venezuelan company. It's an oil company in the United States. In fact, it's the uh, largest retail uh, a company of, of, of gasoline of, uh, in the United States, and it's 100% Venezuelan-owned. Um, uh, uh, Joe Emersberger, who uh, is an analyst who uh, is very empirically oriented, He's, he writes on uh, Venezuela, stated um, two things uh, that I read recently. One is that Citgo, up until this embargo, was sending to Venezuela $1 billion a year. So Venezuela is perhaps deprived of $1 billion per year. And he also states that the embargo from the time that it was initiated, um, I think it was in August of, la of last year, until now, until October 2018, that Venezuela has... Um, been deprived of uh, $5 billion, $5 billion as a result of this, the immediate effect of this, or the direct effect of this financial embargo. But I maintain that the war, what I'm calling the war against Venezuela,
goes beyond these economic factors. Uh, for one thing, and Carlos uh, mentioned this uh, passingly, this war goes back before the financial embargo of Trump. Uh, in a sense, it was initiated by Obama. And uh, I don't know if many of you follow US politics, but I'm convinced that some of the things that Trump is doing, a lot of the things that Trump is doing, with some exceptions, such as Cuba, Iran, but in a lot of cases, immigration, for instance, um, that the policies and the actions of Obama set the stage for what Trump is doing. And this is an example of that. Uh, Obama issued an executive order that declared Venezuela an extraordinary and unusual threat. Those are the words that that order um, stated. A threat to US national security. Now, a lot of people stated that this really doesn't mean anything because it was just an executive order, it was just talk. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting that in the establishment media, when you read about these actions on the part of the US government, it's always kind of like hypothetical. It's always, uh, this is just talk. But up until now, at least, there's no action. There's nothing definitive that's taking place. But the fact of the matter is that US companies, at the time of this executive order, pulled out of Venezuela, Ford, uh, Kimberly Clark, that produces personal care items such as diapers and, and um, paper towels. Uh, Clorox, those three companies pulled out and they received a lot of publicity because the government gave the green light to the workers to take over those factories that were producing those items. But there were other companies also, General Motors, a number of companies moved out. And now you can uh, say that the companies had other reasons to pull out. Uh, they sensed that they wouldn't be making the profit because of the economic difficulties in Venezuela. And that may be true. But there are probably different fa uh, various factors that explain that decision. But the fact of the matter is that the decision to pull out uh, occurred more or less at the same time. And some of the explanations for the decision to pull out of Venezuela were not at all convincing. For instance, the airplanes, the, the, the airlines that pulled out of Venezuela, uh, uh, Delta, United, um, Lufthansa, uh, Iberia, uh, and a number of other airlines pulled out of the Mexican airlines. They pulled out of Venezuela. And some of the, exp the, the explanation was, well, the Venezuelan government uh, um, is not paying us the money that they owe us. Well, that, that's because of a situation that occurred in prior to um, about 2013 or 2014, when the government was basically subsidizing the purchasing of uh, tickets for Venezuelans to travel abroad. But that, that uh, terminated about three or four years before that. So that 
when the airlines decided to pull out of Venezuela, that coincided with the street protests that Carlos was talking about. And so, you know, you ask the question, why did the airlines decide to pull out when they did? And uh, obviously, that explanation was not at all convincing because the, 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 what they claimed the Venezuelan government owed them, uh, that, that was a past issue. It wasn't an ongoing one. So that I would argue that the Obama decree had a lot to do with the economic situation in Venezuela. Um, the, in the case of Trump, it has reached a new threshold um, because the Trump administration is not only talking, uh, is not only implemented in a financial embargo, but is also talking about military intervention. When they say that we don't discard the possibility of military intervention, when Trump says that, uh, you know, if the Venezuelan military decides to overthrow Maduro, I'm sure they will succeed. When Marco Rubio encourages, and Trump also, in a sense, in, in effect, is encouraging the military to move against Maduro when he says that. But Marco Rubio was even more explicit. Um, that is, I believe, uh, an attempt to encourage the military to overthrow Maduro. Um, when the Trump administration talks about uh, the possibility of military intervention, that military intervention is not discarded, uh, what does that say to the Venezuelan military? It says, look, you know, if there is a U.S. intervention, who's going to be uh, fighting the world's most powerful uh, nation? Uh, the military. And so it could very well be that officials in the Venezuelan military could be convinced by that. Look, you know, we got to overthrow Maduro because otherwise we're going to be fighting and some of us were, are, are going to get killed uh, fighting the invading force. Um, and that also strengthens the position of the military in the government. So that's, that's another side effect of this war that is being carried on, uh, carried out against Venezuela, is that the Venezuelan military um, has had a presence in the government going back to the beginning of the Chavez government. I mean, after all, Chavez came from the military. Chavez talked about a military civilian, a civilian military alliance. Uh, he gave the military the right to vote. Uh, and this was part of a, of, a, of a concept of the fact that the military should not be a detached institution. It should be part of the people. The, the military officers um, should be involved in community activity. And, and all that was going on. Um, but now under Maduro, a number of important ministries are headed by military officers. And that obviously is related to the fact that in a warlike situation, when you have uh, protests that are uh, uh, confrontational and involve the shooting and the killing of military officers, the one in 2014, for instance, there were six guards, guardsmen who were killed and one or two policemen who were killed. Uh, in these confrontations with the protesters. These protests, protests were not, uh, uh, not, not all of them were nonviolent. That uh, means in effect that the Maduro government uh, has to 
accommodate the military, accommodate some of the demands of the military, the Maduro's incorporation of military officers in key positions in the government is most likely related to the fact that in this war-type situation, uh, the military is playing a much more important role and can demand more. And in addition to that, there is a problem in Venezuela of corruption. Uh, it's evident. Anybody who lives in Venezuela, uh, I mean, v Venezuela has always had a, a serious problem with corruption. There's no question about it. Um, and uh, I had the sense that in the early years of the Chavez government, um, things were being done. Uh, Chavez, uh, uh, in 2009, uh, jailed a number of people who were accused of corruption, including the, the brother of his right-hand man, Jesse Chacon, Arne Chacon, who, be, who had become a banker. Uh, he was jailed. But this, the problem of corruption is ongoing. And the uh, attorney general, who's a Chavista, who's, who's the governor of the state where I lived, uh, Anzoategui, uh, and was named attorney general. He's a Chavista, and obviously what he's doing, he's doing with the uh, blessing of President Maduro, has jailed uh, a number of important figures in the oil industry and, and, and elsewhere. So there's a, a campaign against corruption. Um, uh, he's jailed uh, something like 20 top executives of the uh, state oil company, PDVSA. Uh, but he hasn't touched the military. And it, it seems to me that there, there is undoubtedly a relationship between this situation that's going on in which Venezuela feels threatened by a foreign invasion and the fact that Maduro, I mean, you know, let's face it, politics is about being pragmatic. Politics is about uh, making things work. Um, politics is the art of the possible. And Maduro knows that. And he can't, you know, um, uh, 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 proceed against uh, military officers. Some of them are corrupt, probably. Uh, but if he does that, he's going to face a reaction uh, taking in the whole institution. Th that's the way these, these things work. Uh, uh, you know, cor corruption is not a question of a few isolated people. It's a whole network. And so that's another ramification of this war that's going on. Uh, emanating from Washington and elsewhere. Uh, and it also, the hard line coming from Washington also polarizes. Venezuela is terribly polarized, but now it's worse. And it polarizes Latin America as well. Uh, uh, it, 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 it uh, you know, uh, the fact that the Trump administration has sent leading figures uh, to Latin America for the express purpose of calling on Latin American governments to take uh, stricter, harsher measures against Venezuela. That began with Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, in uh, the ex-Secretary uh, of State who kicked off his Latin America tour in Austin, Texas. And he floated the idea of military intervention. That was like a trial balloon to see how uh, Latin American countries were going to react to that proposition. Um, uh, Haley, Nikki Haley, 
the former ambassador to the United Nations, uh, went to Colombia. And she said the same thing to, to, to Duque, who was, um, had, had just been elected president of Colombia. She said, we expect you uh, to play a lead role in the campaign against Venezuela. Uh, James Mattis, the, the Secretary of Defense, kicked off his Latin American tour in Brazil, and he said the same thing to the President of Brazil. We expect you to play a lead role. Practically the same words that Haley used in Colombia. Um, so this, this, this uh, means that the war against Venezuela, this campaign against Venezuela, has reached a new threshold. Uh, it goes way beyond what Obama did. Uh, when you have uh, top members of the administration uh, playing an activist role uh, in trying to get uh, Latin American countries to act against Venezuela. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting out of CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show can also be downloaded from the site globalresearch.ca. This week, we're airing a special talk given in Winnipeg by Professor Steve Elner on what is really happening in Venezuela. Here's more of that presentation. In order to understand the situation on the political front in Venezuela. As I said before, you know, the economic explanation uh, that um, there is a dire situation in Venezuela is largely correct. And I said, with regard to democracy, um, there is a lot of half-truths, misleading statements, lies in some cases, and most important, what's going on has been taken out of context. And so I'd like to talk about that briefly now. Um, and I'd like to begin by saying that I believe that in the history of democracy, uh, let's say in the history of liberal electoral democracy, there isn't one case in which a country has been uh, um, attacked on so many different fronts that there has been such aggressive moves against the government, both from the internal uh, fag power factors to foreign governments over such an extended period of time as in the case of Venezuela. I mean, the Chavistas have been in power for almost 20 years. And there's no other case that I know of, at least, of a democratic country in which you have elections, in which you have you know, the basic freedoms. And you have shortcomings uh, and violation of democratic norms, just like you have in the United States. I don't know about Canada, but in the United States, I, I, I do know uh, what goes on. And I know that in the United States, you have, for instance, between five and seven million uh, ex-felons who have been deprived the right, right to vote. They can't vote. They're released from jail. They're ordinary citizens, but they can't vote. If they could vote, they'd probably vote either for the Democratic Party or for a third-party candidate. They wouldn't vote for the Republicans. Uh, they've been deprived of their right to vote. There is voter suppression. Now, in the case of Georgia, this has become a national scandal, but it's been well-documented in many, many other 
uh, states as well, gerrymandering, and the fact that uh, the Republicans have gained control of all the branches of government, you know, both houses of Congress, the president is a Republican, now the Supreme Court, and yet they do not get a majority of votes, a popular majority of votes in the country as a whole. Few people can really understand the U.S. system. So that with these shortcomings in the United States, we can say, and, and in addition to the fact that two of the last three presidents received le less votes than their rival in the case of the elections of 2000 and the elections of 2016. So, okay, in the case of Venezuela, there are also violation of democratic norms. Um, but I believe that you have to separate electoral fraud and uh, in, in, in fractions in terms of uh, norms that are established by the Electoral Commission that the government or the government party uh, are not adhering to. For instance, uh, I'll give you a simple example, but there are others as well. Um, the Electoral Council stated that the um, voting tables, not the voting tables, the, 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 the tables that are set up near the voting centers by the different political parties. You probably have that here in Canada. I know in the States, uh, you have people, I, I've done it, outside voting centers, trying to convince people who are entering, who don't have their mind made up yet to vote for your candidate. Well, the Electoral Council ordered uh, these tables to be over 100 meters from the voting center. And the Chavistas, in some cases, at least, you know, what I saw where I live, um, the voting center nearest to where I live, uh, I saw that the table was less. I estimated that it was less than 100 meters. So you have situations like that. Um, but that's a far cry from electoral fraud. And most of the opposition does not talk about electoral fraud. And when they do, they're talking about really these things that I'm referring to. I define electoral fraud as vote counting or miscounting. When the, counts are, when the votes are miscounted, then you can talk about the lack of democracy. You can say that that country is not democratic. But that's the line that I draw between democratic and non-democratic. Uh, democratic, uh, uh, in democratic countries, you do have, you, in no country in the world do you have uh, absolute democracy. As a matter of fact, the um, leading political scientist in the United States, Robert Dahl, said that, that U.S. democracy is, is really not democratic. He called it a polyarchy. Uh, so that, that's the distinction that I make. And in the case of Venezuela, um, you have uh, uh, different uh, uh, practices on the part of the governing party and on the part of the government. For instance, uh, the opposition was complaining about the fact that on the state channel, the state TV channel, uh, the opposition was guaranteed so much time um, and this wasn't respected, although I saw it on TV, but apparently um, they didn't live up to what the norm was established in terms of the number of hours that each candidate, each pres presidential candidate had in order to um, uh, try to convince voters to vote for, for that candidacy. The, the, the other point that I wanted to make was with regard to understanding the context of 
uh, what uh, has been going on. Um, the I, I, I just mentioned that uh, the opposition Venezuela has been carrying out, uh, has been acting uh, as a disloyal opposition. Political scientists use the term disloyal opposition to refer to an opposition that doesn't recognize the government's legitimacy. And that has been the case practically from the very beginning of, of Chavez's rule. Uh, now that means uh, not only stating that the government is, is, is uh, undemocratic, uh, that is leading, that the government is leading the political system down the road of dictatorship, uh, but also engaging in uh, activities such as the protests in 2014 and 2017. In, in both cases, you had civil disobedience. And this, uh, this is something that I think that um, it's difficult for people in the States and probably here in Canada to really understand. Because when we think of civil disobedience, we think of Martin Luther King, we think of Gandhi, etc. cetera. Uh, but these protests consisted of a combination of civil disobedience and, and, and the use of you know, uh, force against security forces. In the daytime, civil disobedience. But civil disobedience in which uh, traffic was blocked in all the major cities throughout Venezuela. And traffic was blocked in major intersections connecting different, different um, uh, municipalities and main drags in, a, in, in an attempt to paralyze traffic over a period of four months. Now, you may ask, would that be tolerated here in Canada or would that be tolerated in the United States? You know, in the United States, when civil disobedience is carried out, sometimes, and I've seen this, uh, the people who are involved in civil disobedience negotiate with the police. They know what's going to happen beforehand. They know they're going to be arrested. In the case of Venezuela, that was not the case. The protesters were saying, we have a right to do this, and you don't have a right to, pro to, to arrest us. Um, in a lot of cases, I mean, I saw this with my own eyes. Uh, in a lot of cases, you had just a handful of people who were black, you know, five to ten people who were blocking traffic between major intersections um, or between major municip between municipalities on major uh, throughways. Um, so that was in the daytime. In the night nighttime, uh, you had uh, you know these protesters attacking security forces, and like Carlos mentioned, it worked both ways. Uh, there were many deaths. And some of them were the people who were protesting. Others were uh, uh, innocent bystanders. Um, but this is what was going on. Um, so that you have to understand that context. I, I will sum up by saying that the complexity of what's going on in Venezuela it really uh, demands an open discussion in the media, among politicians on both sides, uh, and that I also want to say that what's going on in Venezuela is a learning experience. I myself am critical of a lot of things about the uh, Chavista governments, and particularly the Maduro government, but also Chavez. And I, I think it's very encouraging that 
many of the critics, at least on the left, who are extremely critical of the government, are saying this is the moment for introspection. For introspection. Alberto Costa, for instance, who was practically Correa's right-hand man, but had a falling out with Correa and is now uh, avidly anti-Correa, has stated, this is what we need. We need an introspection. We need an analysis. And I think that that is extremely important. Obviously, mistakes have been made. And the evidence is that these pink-tied governments have been voted out. The evidence is that the Chavises were defeated in these elections that Carlos Ron uh, made reference to in December of 2015, uh, and that, uh, you know, Kirchner was defeated, or her candidate was defeated in Argentina. Um, so that what is happening obviously demonstrates that errors have been committed. And it seems to me that what the Trump administration is doing is aggravating the polarization that goes back in time but is now is worse in the sense that the Venezuelan opposition itself is divided between a soft line that participated in these elections, whose main candidate recognized his own defeat when he was defeated. Uh, he was the incumbent candidate for governor of Lara, which is an important state, and he immediately recognized his defeat. So you have a moderate wing and you have a radical fringe. And the Trump administration is playing into the hands or is encouraging the radicals. And, and I can talk about that if anybody's interested in terms of, of specifics with regard to the moderates and what's happened to them. So it seems to me that on a lot of fronts, you know, war and democracy are incompat incompatible. We know that historically. We know that from Lincoln. We know that from World War I with the uh, jailing of Eugene Debs. We know that from World War II with the jailing of the Jehovah's Witnesses in the United States. Uh, and it's been that way, uh, uh, you know, throughout history. So that it seems to me that the position of the Spanish government, um, unlike the previous PP government of Asnar, uh, the present government of Pedro Sanchez, is a very constructive kind of position, supporting the position of Zapatero, Rodriguez Zapatero, who's taken a, a beating from uh, the right in, in Spain that has demonized him because he has made this ongoing effort to promote dialogue between the opposition and the Chavista government. And it seems to me that really that's where things are at. That firstly, we have to have an open mind there are people in the, in the Chavez government who I believe are, are narrow-minded, and even though they pay lip service to self-criticism, they do very little to accept self-criticism. Not all of them, some of them are that way. And people on the right, the, the radicals on the right who say, like Antonio Ledesma just said, we don't want to have anything to do with dialogue. That is, uh, that is ruled out. Nothing to do with dialogue. We, wanna, we want regime change, and the only way to do it is by organizing activity against the government. So it seems to me that what has to be emphasized, what has to be promoted, what has to be supported is dialogue, both between the opposition and the Chavista government, and dialogue, debate, and self-criticism within the Chavista movement. Thank you.
I think it's very, very fair to say that we heard the side of the government, but we also should learn the side of the people of Venezuela, the people that are actually suffering in Venezuela, because I can tell you right now the government is not. So um, just a history for where Chavez came from and some of the things that you were saying. Um, Chavez was a military who actually initiated a coup d'etat um, against the government. So he initiated that um, public disorder and public disobedience um, in the 1990s. And he was actually incar incarcerated for many years and after um, he came out of jail, he ran for president. Um, so there's a whole history there. Um, sorry, I'm really um, agitated because um, this really, really hurts my heart, everything that's going on in Venezuela. Um, the sanctions uh, done by Canada were actually requested by the Venezuelan people. Um, there has been people that have been able to travel to many, many countries requesting for intervention because the government has not heard our uh, petitions. They have not heard what we are asking for. Um, a lot of these protests uh, started being peaceful of people just marching on the streets, rivers and rivers and rivers of people marching on the streets. Um, and they never heard us. Um, it went like nothing happened. Um, then our students, our brave students, and I'm talking high school students and university students, 15, 16, 17 year old went out to the streets to protest. And the, they felt the only way that they could get hurt was to, um, you know, block the streets, uh, make sure that, you know, there was no, no work, they, so no income was genera being generated for the government. Um, and in so, thank you. And in so, this, these kids were being murdered. They were being cold-blooded murdered. Like there is 14 years old. I have a friend that was 17 year old that died. It was it was horrible. It was. I remember sitting here in Canada watching this on my computer because it took months and months and months before it was broadcasting in Canada, and I was in tears. I was becoming depressed. I was becoming anxious just to see what these kids were going through. They were so brave to go out on the streets and a lot of these kids were able to survive and they are now actually um, traveling countries um, advocating for what's happening in Venezuela. So this was very, very one-sided. Um, not to mention um, there has been institutions like the Red Cross or other popular institutions that have offered to bring medications, to bring food to Venezuela, but the government has stopped them. And they had said, there is no problem in Venezuela. There is no hunger, there is no medication, but yet hospitals, clinics, they're falling, falling apart. Literally, there's roofs are caving in. Kids are dying. Um, it's, it's like, it's probably worse than it would be in Africa. And also another thing that was not mentioned here is that now in Venezuela, about 30,000 people live by food to go all around South America um, to try and, and leave this, this um, dictatorship, because it is a dictatorship. Um, there is camps all down South America. There is camps in Brazil. There is camps in Ecuador, just like there is, Syri there is camps in Syria. It is exactly the same thing. There is so much disease now being spread in these countries, and these countries are taking the burden of all these refugees that 
did not get medical care in Venezuela, that their kids were not vaccinated, and all of a sudden we're seeing the spread of diseases that we have not seen in the past 20, 30 years. So um, with that said, I, if you are a humanitarian believer, I would really, really ask you to take off that button and find out more information and before you donate to this cause. I really, really do appreciate that we were here to talk and to hear both sizes, but I think we need very much information. Um, this is only touching the surface. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, I really want to thank, uh, thank you for thank the organizers for actually opening the dialogue so that we agree. And hopefully this dialogue comes to uh, moving forward. And I thank you so much to all the people present here. I can feel that there are a few Venezuelans here and thank you to all Venezuelans friends for being here and for being so patient listening to these kind of subjects that are so, so hard to listen. I'm very sad that I don't recognize my country any longer. I'm a Venezuelan myself, and uh, you said something very important, is that we're listening pieces of truth. Pieces of truth from what our, our other uh, participant was telling, uh, pieces from, of truth from uh, what you were saying, there is violence, there is corruption, uh, there are illnesses that are coming back, uh, and uh, I think I am trying to remind the words that you used uh, making things work and I am very sad that I don't see that my country is working at all and uh, you mentioned also uh, democracy I find that very interesting and uh, you mentioned all these people that were on the streets that were uh, raising their voices and also through actions to make changes in the country for all these things that we are seeing that affect us all. And uh, that's the big dilemma of democracy. How do we do to move forward? Uh, besides dialogue that I think has been an effort, it's been already ongoing process, it's been years, but how do we move forward like with real actions? It, it, our country needs a leader. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that our leaders are representing us at all. And uh, we need to see some more plans of where we are going. So how do you see democracy? How do we respond to all these Venezuelans here, to the cases of violence? How do we move forward? I think is my question. I think I am <laughs> so many questions as Venezuelan, but how do we really move forward? You mentioned that Chavez spearheaded a coup in 1992 against the government that was democratic, democratically elected, which I, I personally I personally don't believe that uh, a military action against a democratically elected government is justifiable, uh, except in the case perhaps of um, flagrant uh, and ongoing violation of, of human rights. But I mean, that, 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 that's another issue. But what I want to point out is that Chavez changed. He changed in the course of the 1990s. He was released from jail in 1994. Uh, at first, he supported electoral abstention. His party was practically the only party at the time that uh, did not participate in elections. And then in 1997, 
the party, the, the Movimiento Revolucionario Bolivariano 200, MVR 200, uh, changed his position and decided to participate in the elections. And so, I mean, he changed. And I think you have to appreciate that because, uh, look it, take the so-called founder of Venezuelan democracy, Romo Betancourt, sometimes considered as the founder of Venezuelan democracy. Romo Betancourt participated in the coup of 1945 against a government that was very popular, Isaiah uh, Medina. Surveys indicated uh, a while back that he was the most popular president, I remember reading the survey, of all the presidents of Venezuela in the 20th century. He was considered the best president. Uh, he was, you know, establishing elections. There were elections that were going to be held in 1946, uh, direct elections that were be, going to be held the following uh, electoral period. And Betancourt uh, participated with the military in an overthrow of his government. Uh, so that I don't think that that disqualifies uh, Chavez. With regard to the uh, protests, um, you say that these people protested in the beginning and nobody listened to them. Uh, and then the protests changed. But the fact is that the protests from the very beginning, both in, 19, both in 2014 and 2017, in both cases, the protests from the very beginning were illegal protests in the sense that they were all the protesters, not just a few of them. They were blocking. No, let me, no, let me finish. Then, let me finish, please. They uh, were blocking traffic. I didn't see where I live, and I'm I almost positive that this was the case throughout the country. I didn't see protests on the sidewalks. The protests were on the streets. There were barricades from the very beginning on the streets. There were fires, there were boulders, boulders that were dragged down and placed on the streets, and, and, and barricades that were set up on the streets. Now, uh, it could be asked, would that be tolerated in the United States? That you have you know, cities throughout the country paralyzed for four months uh, by these protesters. And the protests in 2014 were protests that were taking place in the middle class, upper middle class, um, municipalities where the mayors were of the opposition. So the Chavistas were saying these protests are being supported or being encouraged, or at least the mayors aren't doing anything to, to, to block these illegal protests. In 2017, um, it is true that there were protests in municipalities in which the, the mayor was a Chavista, but those also were in middle class areas. There was very little residence in the barrios, a little bit, but not much. In the barrios of Caracas, where, the, where at least 50% of the population is located, they have a history of protests, of street protests, both before Chavez and under Chavez and under Maduro. And yet, they did not participate in massive numbers uh, in, these, in these protests where they live in the barrios. So that it's more complicated. It's more complicated. Uh, it's true, and Calderon mentioned this, and perhaps he underestimated it, that there were security forces that acted, that overacted, that, that uh, uh, did, uh, um, didn't act properly. Uh, some of them were jailed, perhaps some of them weren't, I don't know. Um, but the fact of the matter is that 
there were, there, was, there were extremes on both sides. For instance, in 2017, uh, there was an incident that was filmed. Everybody in Venezuela saw it. There was a person that was in the protest, a young person by the name of Orlando Figueroa, who um, they detected that he was a Chavista, and they threw gasoline over him, and they set him to fire. He went running off. He survived for four days. He said in the hospital that they did this to me because I was a Chavista. When he, when he died, his mother said the same thing. The New York Times published an article, as I said before, all their, their articles are skewed in favor of the opposition. They published an article in which they stated that this happened because uh, he was caught robbing somebody. Um, this is what the opposition said. It's part of, in my opinion, damage control. They said, no, he was caught robbing somebody, and so they decided to do what they did. Well, I'm sure that all the Venezuelans in the audience here will agree with me that in Venezuela, I don't know how it is in other countries, but in Venezuela, there is no tradition of that kind of thing. Venezuelans don't burn other Venezuelans, even if they're caught robbing them. And in a political demonstration, even less so. That explanation was quite unlikely. But it's acceptable that the New York Times would present that opinion because it was one opinion. It was the opinion that was presented by the opposition. But they didn't say that it was an opinion. They stated that as a fact. Even though uh, Figueroa himself and his mother both stated this happened because he was a Chavista. So there, was, uh, there were uh, actions, extreme actions, on both sides. And I, I think that, and, and I'm gonna kind of uh, address myself to both of your comments in, in a sense. And I think that you're in agreement with what I'm saying here. Uh, and that is that dialogue, if you have extremes on both sides, That was Professor Steve Elner, Venezuelan-based academic, on what is happening in Venezuela at an October 19, 2018 talk in Winnipeg. Audio was provided by Winnipeg community videographer Paul S. Graham. You can find the complete video and more of Paul's work by visiting the YouTube channel Paul S. Graham. Music this week was the song A New World from Purple Planet Music, which can be found at the site purple-planet.com The Global Research News Hour airs on University of Winnipeg-based radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The podcast can be downloaded from the website globalresearch.ca To leave feedback, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned for your next regularly scheduled program. The Global Research News Hour returns again next week. My name is Michael Welch.